Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Hey, everyone. I am here with Catherine Hume. Catherine is president of Fast Forward Labs. If you listen to the podcast, you uh, may recall that I interviewed her colleague Hillary Mason on the podcast uh, some time ago. Uh, And she's here at the uh, Future Labs AI Summit. Uh, She just finished her talk and she's agreed to chat with us for a little bit. Catherine. Hey, Sam. Happy to be here. Great. Uh, you know what? You have a really intriguing background, um, mostly or in part because I'm a linguophile and you speak eight languages, I hear. Um, and uh, but you, you you have a kind of a you're not the Ph.D. in neural networks that I often interview. Uh, so how did you kind of find your way from where you were to to in this space? through a long and tortured path, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, so my PhD is actually in comparative literature, which is where I spend a lot of time learning languages uh, and reading literature in those languages in my past life. I was a mathematician as an undergrad and uh, just was fascinated by language and cultures and decided to shift paths and do a PhD in literature. And I found myself, as I was working on it, always really interested in what has become natural language processing. So thinking about language, not only from a let's go out and talk with people and communicate perspective, but also how they work. Um, mm-hmm. And I became increasingly interested in the fact that in using you know, uh, AI systems, it didn't, they, didn't, they didn't really treat language like language. So in some of the statistical developments in the early 2000s, it's my PhD from, let's see here, 2007 to 12. Um, it was a lot of n-gram or bigram type work mm-hmm. in language processing. And it was fascinating to me that you didn't need to think about syntax and semantics and all of the grammatical terms that linguists use to think about language to make sense of it. It could just be reduced to a stats problem. Mm-hmm. And that was totally bizarre and interesting and weird for me. So I developed an early interest in AI and I had a couple of you know jobs in software companies that weren't using machine learning and then found my way, fortunately, into this space uh, eventually. So... That's That's amazing. Uh, So your talk was on selling AI into the enterprise. What were the main things you were trying to accomplish with the talk? So I think the main thing was I assumed that there were a lot of young entrepreneurs in the audience, Mm -hmm. and I wanted to help them appreciate that you can't just say, you know, I'm going to go from my research that I did in graduate school, and I'm going to go form a company, and everything's going to work and be magical, right? There's a Mm -hmm. lot of tactical hard work you have to do in order to really make money off of these these new technologies and tools. So, so I, I sort of had three parts in my talk. The first one was uh, what I called the five axioms of enterprise AI, and it just went through a lot of the trends that we're seeing in the enterprise space across different verticals. Fast forward, doesn't we're a horizontal consulting and research firm, so we mm-hmm. you know we work with companies of all shapes and sizes. But there are some patterns that show up. Um, some the biggest of which I think is uh, companies' discomfort with risk and probability. So there's a a cultural and process shift that has to take place for them to really succeed with AI as they mm. move from data, big data, data analytics, where they're counting transactions that occurred in the past to fill out 10K forms and do reporting to experimenting with data to build out new revenue streams and products. And mm-hmm. there's just, it's it's a massive undertaking to reshape the mentality that folks have to actually do this well. 
Um, and then I talked about what I consider to be some super interesting use cases of real, you know, real enterprise AI that we've seen uh, in our customer base, ranging from building out personalized recommender systems to support sales and financial services to building in context-aware surgical robots that can identify critical points in surgeries to basically shift to a, you know, the future of automated, you know, automated robotic surgery somewhere 10 to 15 years down the line. Well, maybe can we maybe walk through one of those? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So, um, let's pick one. We do some work with, uh, the big four and, okay. We uh, as in accounting firms, big for accounting firms. Yep. So they've got a, you know, a lot of problems where they're trying to audit the financial statements of their clients for compliance, or they'll be giving tax advice or some sort of consulting advice, to their clients. So, um, so one use case is it's not the sexiest in the world, but I think it's a great machine learning problem. They came to us and they said, um, today our tax practitioners have a hard time keeping up with new rulings and opinions and news, for lack of a better term, in the legal world related to their particular clients' issues. So there's a big gap between the world of know-how, let's say, in Mm -hmm. law and in advising and the world of applied know-how where you take the rules and regulations and then you apply it to your customer's particular situation. So they engaged us to try to not go so far as to automate the work of providing tax advice but provide more dynamic up-to-date and specific alerts for their tax practitioners on new legal documents that were coming out that, that, that were relevant for their particular client cases. So that involved our using some um, statistical topic modeling techniques where we went in and we started off actually with regular expressions and, and just found got the most out of rules that we could to sort of bootstrap up intelligence in the system and then added on uh, an additional statistical layer of intelligence to get them to a point where they're now able to provide dynamic advice to their clients because mm-hmm. as new rulings come in, they have their sort of fact-specific alerts that are coming out and shift around the product offering, um, reprice it, repackage it, and offer something different than their competitors. Interesting. I'm wondering if there are a couple of uh, generalizable rules in there. One being, uh, do you commonly see folks in traditional enterprises having their first step being using these systems to augment uh, their human staff as opposed to replace? Uh, And the second being, you know, starting out simply with, you know, things like regular expressions and then eventually building up to the statistical techniques? Yeah, those are both absolutely true. So I think one of the common mistakes that we see is that when somebody working in the enterprise who's non-technical, not a machine learning specialist and is interested in trying to do something cool with AI, normally their default assumption is that they can go from manual to completely automated in the first pass. Um, which I think is leading to what I call sort of some of the big distractions and discussions around AI, where we assume that in the next 10 years, the the workplace is going to radically shift and everybody's going to lose their jobs Mm -hmm. and we're going to be replaced by machines and, you know, universal basic income comes up, right? So there's all of this mania we see uh, online. And, you know, our sort of humbled experience in working with companies in practice is that that's, that's not happening anytime soon. How people work will change when they have machines as a, you know, a companion and component. But, um, most of the time, just from a pure technical perspective, it's so hard to have the amount of data that's required to train a system that could really perform with the levels of accuracy that are required to do risk-oriented tasks like mm-hmm. healthcare, diagno- diagnostics, 
trading stocks, whatever it may right. be, that um, they're just, you know, they're, they're mistrusting of the systems and it really takes a long time to actually get enough labeled training data to get a system to perform. Um, and then the second is, yeah, from a, from a product development perspective, we tend to, at Fast Forward Labs, tend to think that you should always start with the simplest algorithm that will scale. So we tend to, you know, we don't we don't start with the neural network. We start with the linear regression. Right. And if it works, then it's got all sorts of benefits. It's uh, if the accuracy is good, it's interpretable. We know how to debug it. We know how to fix it. We mm -hmm. can do some feature engineering as opposed to just throwing the big guns at a problem that might not actually require that. So. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, so you once again touched on trust and, you know, what we can kind of wrap up as cultural issues within uh, customers. How do you, do you, and if so, how do you help them kind of wrap their arms around, you know, these broader cultural issues that are you know, ultimately required uh, for them to successfully introduce these kinds of technologies into their organizations? I think it takes a lot of education and training and a lot of time. So there's sort of two cultural hurdles, um, two primary cultural hurdles that we see. The first is on, let's say, the project planning phase where, you know, there's a lot of risk involved and experimentation involved in doing data science and AI projects. So they don't lend themselves to, they certainly don't lend themselves to a waterfall methodology and they don't even really lend themselves to agile because you're not really sure at each step how long it's going to take, if it's going to work, if the models are going to converge. So we have to do a lot of um, just coaching to help people understand how to do the data science phase, let's say, in a product mm. development process and and help, let's say, the, the technologists that we're working with coach them to have the meetings that they're going to have to have with their management um, who are going to be skeptical and not understand why they're spending money on a project that might not work out, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a lot of the fail-fast, risk-based um, thinking that we hear about in the startup world that needs to be imported into the enterprise. The second is on, let's say, the consumption of the user like the use of outputs of the system where um, there's a lot of design thinking that that has to go in to help people use predictions well. So if they, let's say they're using a, a more like complex statistical tool and the output is going to be a distribution that says, yeah, we think it's, here's our prediction. We're 82% confident and the accuracy rate is at, you know, 36% or something like that. So the average user is not going to know what to do when that's what their system tells them. So, um, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of work in the, the bigger problem in the enterprise today is not, is not replacing our workers, but actually giving them some sort of basic statistical intuition so they can, mm -hmm. they can use machine learning effectively. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So I spoke, uh, when Hillary was on the show, we spent some time talking about the, uh, this issue of agile methodologies, not lending themselves to uh, this type of uh, problem, which was really counterintuitive to me. I thought that, you know, I guess thinking of it kind of, you know, in a bipolar way, waterfall and agile, hey, you'd, wanted, you'd sure. want to use agile. Um, on the topic of culture, one of the most interesting stories that I've heard uh, came out of uh, Lowe's. Um, I heard a talk by the head of innovation there who's focused on some of their machine learning AI types of initiatives, and they were really struggling to get their executives uh, kind of on board with some of these types of projects, and you know, get their get their heads wrapped around the, these you know the risk issues without um, them 
you know, just kind of latching into these problems and taking them, you know, either taking them too far or, you know, out of the gate saying, hey, you know, that'll never work, right? And so what they did was they uh, they hired a, a graphic artist and they produced these comic books that basically okay. illustrated, you know, uh, a, a given future, you know, at Lowe's. And what they found was that the the comic books were interest in a very interesting way. They were, you know, tangible, um, but they were also constrained. So, you know, they uh, they didn't necessarily, you know, the, the, an executive could say, yeah, I want to do that. I, I'm, I'm willing to put some money behind that. So so one of the examples they gave was I think they call it the Lowe's bot. It's basically a customer service robot that ro- roams around stores and will, you know, can answer questions and things like that. Uh, and they first uh, documented what they envisioned this project to be in one of these comic books and eventually it got funded. And I think it's in a few stores in Northern California now. Uh, are there any other kind of tricks or interesting uh, things that you've seen customers do to kind of help drive these cultural shifts? I think there's all sorts of lessons in what you just described from Lowe's. So when you were just when you were just thinking about the comic book and the tangibility, um, the imagination is really important. Right. Mm. So, um, you know, there's one thing that we see is it's and I talked about this in the talk, um, you know, the executives at companies will have seen that Google's able to classify cats or they'll have seen IBM Watson and they'll have seen playing Jeopardy and they'll have seen Google DeepMind playing Go. And they're completely befuddled as ha- as to how those achievements in the realm of games and in the realm of the sort of consumer internet and the frivolousness around it um, are relevant for the tactical, boring business problems that they have. And in part, that's because if you don't really understand the general backend technology, it's 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 hard to make the imaginative leap from you know to do the 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 synthesis between one domain and how that might be applied in another. Mm-hmm. So I think um, the concreteness of the book, right, where it's not you're not leaving it up to their imagination to right. imagine what this technology might do. You're playing out scenarios. You're using fiction and mm-hmm. the ability of the imagination to sort of to to make that happen. And granted, it's there's a difference between who knows if the reality is like the the uh, the screenplay that was written, right. but that's okay. The the right. actual product can be completely different from the original version. It just right. you just have to have the impetus to want to invest. So I think. Um, one of the things that we've seen at Fast Forward, we have a, as I'm sure Hillary talked about on the podcast, we have a subscription product where we educate our customers as to what's possible today in the realm of AI. Very few are those who actually are applying the algorithms that we teach them about, mm-hmm. but that's okay because it inspires their imagination, it gets them excited, mm-hmm. and it's a really useful tool to then to muster a lot of the, you know, the organizational energy that's required to then do something that is practical and might look really different. Mm-hmm. Um, other kind of techniques that I've seen, I think there is, I think, I, I talked about this a little bit in the talk too, um, we have to always remember that we're all just humans, right? And, <laughs> um, and we respond at work kind of in the same ways that we respond when we're outside of work. But we sort of, we put on this work hat and suddenly think that we're supposed to use these processes and this stuff that we read about that is a little counterintuitive, it doesn't necessarily mm. feel right. And my hunches and, and take is that if we can use humor even, uh, I, I talked with somebody who's just an excellent uh, biz dev person the other day who would start off his meetings with, 
large, serious customers with some sort of gimmick. And it would just shift the the tone in the room uh-huh. and lead to real, honest, problem-solving discussion. And right. I think if you anything that you can do to get that so that you're not fearful of saying something that's going to upset your boss or, you know, yeah. having to go around corners and stuff, uh, and, and even from being a company, a startup company working with a large organization, to the extent to which you can create an environment where it's two equals thinking through something, you'll have a much higher probability mm-hmm. of success. So, oh, Very interesting. I'm curious where uh, – at what part of the cycle does your typical – client come to you do they uh is it is it mania driven hey we want to do something around this ai stuff and we hear that you folks are good at it or is it we've got a specific problem and we want to solve it or somewhere in between can you statistically characterize the distribution (laughs) (laughs) is it poisson or gaston um so it varies we definitely have a lot of um you know younger smart bright uh, researchers in machine learning who will write in and say, this is awesome. I want, I want to read your reports. I want to work for you. Um, and that's great. And it helps us build our community, but it's not necessarily what pays our bills. Um, mm-hmm. I think from the, you know, the real interest, it'll sort of lie in, in that depends on the spectrum of maturity that the different enterprises have. Sometimes folks will reach out and they're actually really at the beginning of a data science journey for lack of a better mm-hmm. word. And they're looking for help building out a governance plan, doing some basic analytics, et cetera. And that's not exactly, we're not, we're not staffed. We're not a huge consulting company that can serve those kind of requests. So we have sort of a partnership network where we'll push them off. The ones that work um, often either have a specific problem. So they have enough uh, awareness and understanding of the business potential of AI that they can pose a good problem, but they don't necessarily have the internal resources to staff it and execute. Or they may have already they do have data scientists, they're doing some work, um, but they're looking for a neutral third party who has expertise in this domain, which is rare, to come in and evaluate what they're doing vis-a-vis the Googles and Facebooks and IBMs of the world to just make sure they're on the right track. Um, so so we tend to work well uh, if there is an existing data science team in place um, and they're looking to go from you know where they are today to where they might go and using some more advanced techniques. There's not a ton of companies that are sort of at the, you know, at that phase. There's right. very few enterprises that are actually using deep learning, like mm-hmm. very few. Right. Cause right. they don't have the data. They, I, I mentioned this in the talk too. There's um, we have this uh, false impression that just because it's a big enterprise, they're going to have lots of data. They do, but they haven't been considering data over the last hundred years with an mm-hmm. eye towards building machine learning products. So, right. They don't have labeled training sets, and they don't have it well composed and, and processed right. and ready to use. It's right. there, but it takes years of work to make it useful. Mm. Um, I'm, do you have any perspective on um, – your company has uh, made a name for itself initially, I believe, as a data science company. And you know, there's obviously um, a lot of, again, kind of mania around AI. And I'm I've been trying to kind of wrap my head wrap my head around the relationship between these two terms. Do you have a perspective on that? It's a great question. So I think uh, the even the experts in the AI and machine learning community don't agree on what the <laughs> definition of, of what AI is. Sure. Right? So Hillary and I will just say it's whatever computers can't do until they can. So it really is sort of a it's our subjective impression on what this stuff is. Um, I mean, we consider AI to be 
today. And if you look through the history, one can go back to expert systems and some of the early attempts to mimic first order logic in mm -hmm. the, the days of Turing and, you know, uh, Claude Shannon and early information theory. So, um, and I actually think there could be a resurgence of uh, symbolic you know, AI techniques sometime in the future as we try to move towards training systems with, with less data. Mm -hmm. But um, the inheritance of the early 2000s where, you know, we really were collecting data and processing it with, at scales that we hadn't seen before and with computational power that was faster than we'd seen before, I think leads it to the fact that AI systems today are just sort of a next extension of what we call data science. Uh, sometimes I think it's meaningful to say the type of data that AI systems work on is different. So we're going from transactional data to images, text, speech, right? So categories that historically are intractable because they require vectors of such high dimensionality mm -hmm. that we didn't have the backend functions that could approximate, you know, universal functions, right? So right. just get to the level of complexity where they actually work for that kind of data. I think that's meaningful. Mm -hmm. um, outside of that, it's you know, what, what one person calls AI might be what somebody else calls data science. And it's just a question right. of, it's a question of which, which term you want to use to get more bang for your buck. Yeah. Uh, so as we wrap things up, any parting thoughts for the listeners? Sure. So we talked a little bit about, um, you know, other past guests that you've had uh, that have been focused on thinking about ethics and trust and bias in these systems. Um, I think it's a big issue. Where we're actually working on it right now at Fast Forward Lab. Our upcoming topic is on interpretability. So mm -hmm. the ability, uh, the standard sort of wisdom today is that if you're using a model like a neural network, it's going to give you great predictions, but you have no idea why. Um, and I think in you know, some of the large enterprises, financial services, healthcare, regulated industries, and even ones where consumers are just curious about why, <laughs> why the machine is telling them to do what they're what it's telling them to do. I think there's some cool efforts afoot to try to gain a little bit more transparency, um, try to, you know, turn a nonlinear complex function into something that we can understand a little bit better. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's something to, that companies, that, A, as a, as a machine learning practitioner, you have to keep your eye out for because it can be an obstacle to adoption and B, that people just seem to be generally interested in. So. Yeah, it's a huge issue and one that I hear coming up all over the all place. All the time, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Great. Well, thanks so much, Catherine. It was great having you on the show. Thanks for having me. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. Don't forget to share your favorite quotes for one of our Twimmel stickers. Again, you can share them via the show notes page, via Twitter, or via our Facebook page. The notes for this show will be up on twinlai.com slash talk slash 20, where you'll find links to Catherine and the various resources mentioned in the show. Thanks so much for listening, and catch you next time.